Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I motivate myself to learn new things by, well, using the excuse that I need to teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So I want to start out this week um, with a thank you. For, uh, this is the first uh, episode where I've, you know, taken someone's recommendation of a topic and made an episode out of it. So I will thank my father-in-law, Keith, for suggesting the Kipu, which is a mathematical device that I, you know, intended on looking into, and I did, and then I got really carried away. Um, so as a result, we will not talk about the Kipu until part two <laughs> next episode. Um, mm, way to unveil <laughs> is there is part, a... Well, you see, by the time the listeners are listening to this, Everett, this episode will be, will be titled part one. So they would have already known when they clicked on it. I guess you so that, are that, the that was more of, yeah, surprise. this was more a surprise on me than anything else. Okay, got it. This is exactly. part one. Surprise on you. This is part, we have to do math for two episodes in a row. A lot of people would groan right now, but I kind of feel like you'll be okay with it. I feel um, this is like maybe half our listeners the content are right now because... or one over two segments. Sure is. That was clever. You see that shocking command of the maths that I had there? <laughs> it has to develop somehow. Start somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, as you will see from the title that you are reading on your screen when you click this episode, we're going to talk about the history of maths. Part one. Part one. And yes, I say maths. Um, because I mostly learned about this stuff, like my research mostly came from the websites of some European universities and a lot of it from a BBC miniseries, which was actually really cool, called The Story of Maths. Um, so apparently in every country where English is the first language, they say maths, not math, except us and the US, of course, you know, our yeah. little two country dyad that we do silly things with. Um, and it makes more sense to me because maths is short for mathematics. You're not going to say mathematic. Anyways, so right. I was going to say math this or maths this episode and be like all cool and pretentious, um, but I, I can't, I can't do it. I've said math my whole life and it just sounds wrong coming out of my mouth. Like, sure. don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anyone that says it that way is wrong. They're probably more right, but they just sound wrong to us. No, no. So... It sounds right when they say it. <laughs> like, like this guy, you know, maybe you need a British accent. Cause when that British math professor said maths, that certainly sounded like the correct way to me, but I don't have a cool British accent, so we're going to stick with math, I guess. I'll probably just say both. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. I think we should get started. Perfect. Well, then teach me something. Okay. So I wanted to start with, like, how and why did it all begin? How did math begin? In, at zero. In general. Like, starting at our last common ancestors with monkeys. Like, okay. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm, I'm lying. We're not going to start that far back. We're going to start with, like, modern humanity. <laughs> oh, How okay. did modern humanity do math? Because primates don't do math. Their brains might be some of the way there, but they're not all the way there. And our brains are remarkable and unique in the animal kingdom in, in our ability to understand and do mathematics. Um, but how this evolved is unfortunately still unknown. And I'm kind of upset about it because I did all this research and they're like, we don't know. Darn it. I get it. It's complicated, but darn so according to one hypothesis mathematics like you know some other cultural abilities that appeared suddenly in modern humans during the upper paleolithic like you know art really like burials that's when that stuff started happening we're talking forty thousand years ago okay. um anyways the theory is that mathematics is an offshoot of the human language 
um, sure. faculty. Noam Chomsky has suggested the origin of the mathematical capacity lies in an abstraction from linguistic operations. That's a very fancy quote because Noam Chomsky is a fancy, fancy linguistics dude. Um, but many mathematicians and physicists disagree with that, and they're insisting that mathematical thinking is mostly non-linguistic. Like Albert Einstein has said, words and language, whether written or spoken, do not seem to play any part in my thought processes. And I'm going to believe him because he's Albert Einstein. Because that guy was Albert Einstein. <laughs> and everyone clapped. Yeah. Um. So, you know, which theory is more likely? Until recently, it seemed like either or neither could be correct, um, kind of equally. Mm-hmm. Over the last decade, um, more research has been done that is suggesting mathematics and linguistics are very separate processes. Uh, so I'm going to give you a few details here because I'll be honest, I will use any excuse to cram biology into an episode. Seems um, right. <laughs> so, so we're going we're going there first. Okay. Um, two sets of brain areas are associated with number processing so far. Um, so bilateral, intraparietal. And prefrontal areas are activated for uh, like number, per- like perceptions, calculations, and like this is a circuit like going between the intraparietal and prefrontal areas. This circuit um, is found in infants right away. It's even found in untrained monkeys. Like it's um, the basics are there in other primates' brains. Okay. Um, those are the very the very basic circuits, I guess. Um, so. There is also a bilateral inferior temporal region that's activated by the sight of number symbols, but not by visually similar letters. And they've done those studies in different cultures that have different types of letters and numbers. It still holds true. So, for instance, okay. think about our Arabic numerals that we use. Yeah. Um, yes, those are Arabic numerals, guys. <laughs> I don't think that's widely known. Um, like the letter eight, or the number eight and it's the letter the letter B, like a capital B in English. Yeah. Those look similar. Yes. I'm sure we, we all kind of picture that. Um, this region of our brain can in like instantly, once you know you're old enough, tell the difference between that eight and the B right away in different areas, you know, light up and okay. that's pretty cool. Um, so all those regions that I just mentioned though of your brain lie outside of like the classically thought of language areas of your brain. Um, and they've done like functional MRI studies, fMRI mm-hmm. studies to confirm that the areas involved in numbers and language are operating completely independently of each other. Okay. Um, so people experiencing brain injuries or illnesses also are giving us some evidence that math and language um, are, are not dependent on each other. Um, so, like, number comprehension and, like, algebra, that kind of stuff. Like, it's it's preserved in patients that have, like, types of dementia and aphasia. Like, aphasia is kind of like your brain can't quite communicate the way you think it is with your words. Okay. But even those patients have all their number manipulation abilities intact. So, that's pretty cool. Um, but that's not to say that the linguistic areas in our brain have no role whatsoever in math ability. Um, because they do help us perform calculations faster. They, there are, there is an area that helps us um, with throat memorization for like arithmetic facts. Um, okay. Like think like your times tables. Once you yeah. memorize those things and it's strict memory, then that's actually kind of moved into the linguistic or like into the linguistic area of your brain. Well, it's almost like you've learned the words behind it. 
not necessarily yeah it's like you're it's like when you memorize something you're memorizing it by words and not by numbers right um okay or by concept or by something like that yeah so like just to dig a little deeper how does your brain do math like I'll just, like, I've mentioned the areas already, and, and those are words I don't expect anyone will remember or memorize, yeah. but, I mean, I'll say them again here. Repetition's the key. <laughs> um, like, any intelligent behavior, like, mathematical goals are achieved by a series of sub-tasks that we kind of add on top of each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this creates, like, a, a structured mental program, almost. Uh, this is all going to sound kind of familiar to coders because our brains are amazing computers. Um, so there are two strategies our brains use to solve math problems. Um, the first strategy, you know, just calculating the answer. It's called procedural strategy. So that's when you're doing a bigger problem and you're doing those steps or procedures. Like, for example, when someone says to you solve, you know, 1250 times 3, you might break that down in your head into a thousand times three and 250 times three and add those together. That's a procedural strategy. Yeah. Um, extra steps though have downsides. It takes longer and every step you add into something increases the chance of error. Yeah, of course. Um, so you don't use that same strategy to solve the same problem forever, right? You're, you're after solving it over and over, the correct answer is kind of just going to pop into your head, right? Um, so this is a different way of solving a problem. This is uh, fact retrieval. Sure. So by practicing the same thing, you're storing it in your long-term memory. Um, and that switch from the procedural strategy to the fact retrieval um, is a really important step developing your arithmetic abilities. Um, so you become better at solving easier problems, but you're also better at solving more difficult problems because all those little steps maybe are now memorized. And then for a bigger problem, the number of steps You've gets got the condensed steps down. Memorized, yeah. yeah. Um, so, if we looked in our brains while you're solving an arithmetic problem, for example, so like researchers use the fMRI thing or the EEG, like a brain scan, mm-hmm. um, to look at people's brains when they're doing math. So you're going to see activity in the intraparietal sulcus. This is sure. in the. This in not your important. Head. This is not important. Where I just want to say the words because I think it's interesting, but like. You don't have to memorize those. It's not important. Um, it's in the parietal cortex, and it's responsible for understanding the meaning of numbers. So, like, the first step when you're solving a problem is to kind of capture that number's size and relative position, or like, on a number line, basically. You're okay. getting a feel for the numbers you're working with. This is, like, things you don't even know that your brain does. Little sure. steps that your brain does. Um, then you're going to see activity in your frontal cortex. Three different areas. Okay, ready for big, more big words? Go for it. The ventrolateral prefrontal cortex is going to work with your parietal cortex to block distractions from the other areas of your brain. Oh, like run interference. Like daydreaming. <laughs> like, yeah. you're like, no, this is the part of the brain that needs to work right now, you guys. Um, <laughs> and then the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is where you actually manipulate your numbers, basically. Um like when you're splitting up that large problem into easier steps, you're kind of doing it in that area of your brain. Um, there's a part of your brain called the inferior frontal gyrus that helps you rule out similar but incorrect answers, like almost like instinctually. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then the remaining areas of activity are in the hippocampus and the angular gyrus. So the hippocampus is a little circular 
ball-shaped area in the very deep inside your brain. It's got a lot of functions, really important functions, um, like most of these other areas. These aren't just for math, right? But when it comes to math, the hippocampus works with your frontal cortex to store arithmetic in your long-term memory. Um, and then the angular gyrus is involved in finding and retrieving those facts from your long-term memory, bring, bring them back out. Um, so the last piece of the puzzle is like, how does it all work together? Um, so instead of using mostly procedural strategies to solve arithmetic, you're going to start using fact retrieval and that changes how your brain operates. So while you're young, your frontal cortex has more of an important role. Like it manages the working memory and the attention. Yeah. And then as you get older and you're using the fact retrieval, then your frontal cortex is much less active in solving math problems. Okay. Um, you, you can see it on the fMRI, it becoming less active as you get older. And it's still involved, but it, it doesn't have to work as hard. And the same thing with the hippocampus. Like during fact retrieval, it's more active in young children than it is in adults because it's still working so hard to have to save those answers. And as you get older, you can see the activity. You can see it less and less. Um, and then, I mean, everything has to work together by communicating. So this communication happens with the substance you've probably heard of called white matter. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, pathways in your brain from one area to another, like a, like a, like a road. Um, and one of these roads is the superior longitudinal um, fasciculus, which again, no one needs to know that word, but um, it connects the prefrontal cortex with the parietal cortex. Those two major areas that everything is kind of happening in. Um, so that's an important thing in math, obviously. Um, but we don't really know a lot more than that. Like I said, we don't know the evolution of it. We don't know when we got to the point of monkey brain to, you know, there's no discrete time that we've all of a sudden been able to do math. Right. Um, and I'm not sure exactly the evolutionary pressures. It's, it's pretty complicated. So maybe the why of math invention is probably easier to kind of pick out, um, to explain. Not that we know anything for sure, though. Um, it's the same kind of thing. We don't know. We have, we have lots of good guesses. And they all probably played some sort of small role. Um, so you, you could argue that math was developed out of necessity due to a change in the way humans lived. Sure. So at the end, yeah, of, I could see that. Yeah. yeah, at the end of our last ice age, the Homo sapiens start to settle down into an agrarian lifestyle instead exactly. of this nomadic lifestyle we used to have. Um, why did we do that? So here's some theories. <laughs> Again, we don't know, but the leading right. theory probably. You never know. There's a lot of fighting. But the leading theory is is localized climate change. Um, so, like, when major climate change took place after the Ice Age ends, so we're talking 10 to 12,000, 11,000 BCE yeah. kind of thing, um, the Earth starts to experience these long, dry seasons it didn't have before that, which would favor annual plants, which die off in the dry season, and you get, you know, the seed or the tuber or whatever. And, and, and then they've collected an abundance of storable wild grains and pulses, and they're able to settle down into villages. Right. Um, but, you know, like I said, there's tons of other hypotheses as well. Like, why did we stop foraging and start farming? Um, any one of them could have contributed. So, like, population pressure. Maybe there was just an increased population, um, and then there's increased competition for food. So we need to, you know, make more food or maybe there was an idea that we wanted to involve 
you know, the elderly or children in food production more, you know, they need jobs maybe. Like, there's like ideas like Social this. classification or, or social, like, division. Just trying to involve, yeah, more yeah. of the, the tribe, as it were. Um, you know, another theory is that maybe people in this area, so we're talking about the Levant, the cradle civilization, Fertile Crescent area, mm-hmm. um, maybe people learn to depend on plants that they modified in early domestication attempts. And then, of course, those plants depend on humans or else they would be extinct too. Anyway, so Correct. it could have just been a very, very slow ramp up of we, we grew a little bit while we moved around. Then we grew a little bit more and then we grew a little bit more. And it kind of just hit a critical mass moment. <laughs> right. Um, so until recently, as I told you, researchers agreed that farming first really took hold in that ten to 12,000 year ago um, period Correct. in the cradle of civilization, you know, Iraq turkey around that that area right Um, around the kind of eastern mediterranean area yeah so while it may still be true that this is when the agrarian lifestyle really like took off and took hold it probably isn't when humans started farming so a 2015 i would assume that farming was probably earlier right Hopefully. Or, or forms of farming. <laughs> yes. So um, a 2015 discovery showed us the first evidence that humans tried to start cultivating plants at least 23,000 years ago. Um, so the study that, that I read focused on the discovery of the first weed species at the site of a, a sedentary human camp on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so while full-scale agriculture didn't develop until much later... Um, this is much earlier than we thought that people were experimenting with these types of concepts. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, you know, worth mentioning that humans began to experiment with farming, but also domesticating of animals at you right. know, a similar time. You know, sheep and goat herding. Anyways, why does this matter? Like, it feels probably to you like we've gotten very off track of math. Wow. Why does this matter? Why does farming and settling really have any impact on math? Perhaps the ancient Egyptians, really the first mathematical innovators that we know of, will kind of help ex- explore and, and illustrate what this is going to have to do with each other here. Um, so Homo sapiens settled in ancient Egypt by about 6,000 BCE. Um, and, and this land, as you know, had pretty awesome conditions for farming. Yeah. Um, the Egyptians used the flooding of the Nile to establish a calendar. Yeah. So every year the Nile flooded once at the same time every year and it became the start of their year. Um, and they needed to know how many days happened between lunar phases and between, like, these Nile floodings um, to make a calendar. Just like with their writing, they used hieroglyphics to record the amount of days that went by, the amount of moon cycles, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and you know, then they were successful in their farming. And as that happened, they grew richer and grew into bigger populations. So as settlements grew larger, the burden of administering them and the need for math to do that also kind of grew larger. So yeah. if there's more people in an area, you need to calculate, for instance, like areas of land, predict crop yields, charge taxes, you know, death and taxes, right? Yeah. So basically they need a way to, to count and keep track of larger numbers than humans had done before. So the Egyptians had a base 10 number system motivated by, you know, our 10 fingers. Which, yeah. It's a good place to start, right? They recorded large numbers by breaking them down into parts. So they had, like, a hieroglyph for one. It was a line, by the way. 10 was a a cattle hobble. I don't know what it is. kind of looks like an upside-down U. 
Okay. Like a horseshoe. I don't know. Okay, sure. A <laughs> uh, hundred was a coil of rope. A thousand was a lotus or water lily. Ten thousand was a bent finger. A hundred thousand was a tadpole. I think it looks like a bird. They call it a tadpole. <laughs> I think it's, well, I, I don't know. One million was uh, Hay, who was the personification of infinity or eternity in the Egyptian religion. Um, uh, a god or a demigod? I'm not familiar with that one. No, I don't. Mm, they don't necessarily say it's actually a god. Someone is just is, is an important figure in their mythology. Okay. Like may, deity. We'll go with deity, sure. but like god, maybe not. Like, you know, ancient Greek had these, like, wind spirit, like, you know, just kind yeah. of, uh, it was the personification of infinity. It wasn't, like, a god in itself. It was a religious personification. Sure. That's all I, that's all I know. Um, so, like, that was some of the first numbers in history. A little complicated, though. Like, to, to write about, they used cubits for measurement, by the way. So to write about, let's say, 24,682 cubits, you're going to have to draw Two bent fingers, four lotuses, six coils of rope, eight upside down U's, and two lines. As in, it was additive. Yeah, like they, if if you have twenty four thousand, you've got to write two ten thousands, four one thousands, yes, six one hundreds. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're drawing a lot. Like, for example, if they want to write nine hundred nine nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. The scribe has to use 54 characters to make that happen. Because it because it's nine... Of every single... One thousand. Yeah, one hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Nine. Ten thousand. Okay, mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, so each digit had to be written. Yeah, okay. Right. I understand. And... Right. So you can see how this may be terribly inefficient. Sure. Um, they lacked the concept of a place value. That's mm-hmm. the big drawback of their number system. But still innovative, right? Still, uh, absolutely. Still new. Yeah. Um, ancient people also needed to measure. The Egyptians used their bodies for that. So remember I said a cubit before. Well, a cubit is the length from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. A palm, shockingly, is the width of a hand. Oh, not a frond? Okay. <laughs> no, because apparently that was more variable in size than, you know, human hands, which are quite variable in size, yeah. so I still think it's silly. But, um, hey, feet, right? <laughs> we still use that. Yeah. Um, there's a very strong link between bureaucracy and the development of math in ancient Egypt, probably in a lot of ancient cultures. I was going to say, for sure, the, the whole we're cultural... S- we're starting with Egypt on this one, but it's a, it's a thing, right? But I would, I would suggest that the settling down and having a social system with bureaucracy is probably one of the main factors leading to needing to maintain order through math. Well, yeah, like, so they have to know the size of every farmer's land so they could tax them accordingly, right? Um, they they used a measurement called land cubits, which were one cubit by 100 cubits. So oh, like these big okay. rectangular strips. Mm-hmm. That's how the pharaoh's surveyors calculated area. And it was important for them to do this because, for example, um, if the Nile flooded a part of a farmer's land, um, and therefore, you know, you can't harvest crops from that area, the farmer could request a, a refund or, you know, like, a re- don't charge me for this part of the land, but the, the surveyor has to go and calculate what the parcel of land that was lost. So they're going to have to calculate the area of irregular shapes, right? Yeah. So the Egyptians are the first we know of to invent math for that. Um, so there's something called the Rhind Mathematical Papyrus, from about 1650 BCE, it's, and it's one of the, the few that survived from that time. 
Like, unfortunately, the problem with ancient Egyptian math is that they did it on papyrus. Right. And as you know, that's not very durable. Very brittle. Hardly any of them survived. You know, things happened like the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Like, a lot of things happened to destroy these things, plus just time. Mm -hmm. They're not durable. So, um, this is one of the only big sources we have, but it's a really good source. So, it outlines the method the Egyptians invented to multiply and divide large numbers. Okay. Um, So, I can tell you about it, but it it might be hard with just words. But but I'll try. So, So, basically, here's the method. For example, we're going to do 3 times 6 just to make this easy. So the scribe is going to take your first number, 3, mm-hmm. and it's going to put that number in the first column. There's two columns. Column 1, column 2. Column 1 gets your first number, and column 2 just gets a number 1. Okay. And then next row, he's going to double in both columns what he just wrote down. So it'll be a 6 in your first column and a 2 in your next column. Okay. Okay. Then he's just going to double them again. Now in the left column we have going down 3, 6, 12. On the right we have 1, 2, 4. So basically they would double that until they could add up to the, like, it's 3 times 6, right? So they have to add up to 6 on the right-hand column. That's what they have to do. We've already done enough for that. We've done rows that have a 4 and a 2 in them. And so Okay, so then we go add what's in the left column. That yes, uh, the okay. numbers that belong with the two and the four on the right that add up to six, we add those numbers together, and 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 there's your numbers. It's almost it's interesting. It's like the calculations You're behind say binary, it, aren't you? Yes. The cool thing about this method. Here's what I've read. I'm going to read verbatim <laughs> what my notes say. The cool thing about this method, and I know Everett realized it from the start, is that it is effectively binary. I, that's that's verbatim what I have written in my notes. So, Good. Um, Again, uh, we we need to spend more time apart. <laughs> Apparently um, so. <laughs> so in binary, six is one one zero. Mm-hmm. So the Egyptians were saying that exact thing. They were saying one lot of fours, one lot of twos, and zero lots of ones. Mm-hmm. So one one zero, and this was three thousand years before Leibniz is going to reveal the true potential of this base two number system known as binary. So that was very ahead of its time. Um, They solve complex division by dividing like the remainder numbers into smaller and smaller pieces. Right. um, Which is kind of inventing fractions, right? Yeah. Long division, really. Fractions. Well, we're really talking about fractions here because... um, Fractions became important when dividing quantities for trade in, in markets, for example. That was where this really was in uh, the math. That's the purpose behind this math. Okay. Um, so the Egyptians had this concept called Horus I fractions. Okay. It's binary numbering system for fractional quantities of grain, liquids, and other measures from the markets. So it's called this because... Um, the symbols used for the system could be rearranged to form the eye of, of Horus. It, this is debated. It's not maybe exact. This might be apocryphal a little bit okay. going back in time, but I'm sure you've seen the eye of Horus. Um, you'd, you'd have to Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. And you'll be like, Oh, that, you know, Egyptian looking eye thing. <laughs> It's like a line on one side, kind of an eye, and then almost like a yes, eyelash girl, coming like off of it. Yeah, like makeup yeah. looking. Anyways, Horus is an old kingdom god, half man, half falcon. Mm-hmm. Uh, mythologically, Osiris, father of Horus and Set, 
mm-hmm. he was killed by Set. And and I say that like that's the only there's about a million different versions of Osiris Set. Some of them Osiris and Horus are the same person. Actually, lots of them. And it's very confusing is what I'm trying to say. This is one version of one story. Um, so yeah, Osiris gets killed by Set. Horus vows to avenge his father. Horus and Set battle for decades and decades and do crazy things to each other that um, are not PG-13 and I cannot tell you about. Um, but in the end, Set, well, he loses a testicle and Horus yeah. loses his eye. Um, Set tore up his eye and scattered it all over Egypt. And then the gods uh, apparently favored Horus, and they collected all the little pieces for him, and this is Horus's eye. Um, so anyways, each part of the eye, this is the mythological story, represents a different fraction. Each fraction being half of the one before it. Okay. Um, it's like pieces of the picture, basically, just lines within the picture. There's smaller areas. The areas are like what's represented by the fraction, is what they're trying to say. Okay. Um... And the Egyptians used the Hecat as their unit of volume measurement. So at the market, they kind of use this eye of horse mathematical problem to express fractions of a Hecat. So they basically the sum of binary fractions. One half, one quarter, one eighth, one sixteenth, one thirty-second, one sixty-fourth. Yeah. Yeah. So the reassembled horse's eye, now we know, in our modern day, when we look at it, it's actually one sixty-fourth short of being whole. It's right. like they stopped. Sense. They're like, no, these numbers are now too small for us. We like, never I get into one, uh, one hundred and twenty-eight. Right. And, yeah. It's not practical from a market standpoint. So why would they do it? Kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. Um, humanity isn't going to discover the concept of what's called an infinite series for thousands of years. An infinite series sure. is literally just keep doing these fractions forever because yeah. you're never going to quite get to the whole, right? Yeah. Um, but this system illustrated the first concept of a geometric series. And if you know anything about math, which I do not, but that's apparently pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so many other examples of geometric series were found in the Rhind papyrus. Um, early forms of it were actually found in a papyrus from the 5th dynasty of, e- dynasty of Egypt, which is about 2400 BCE. Um, and then the fully developed hieroglyphic forms date to about the 19th dynasty, which was like 1200 BCE. So, a uh, very long time ago. So, another impressive breakthrough on the Rhine Papyrus was that the ancient Egyptians had a really accurate estimation for the area of a circle. Okay. Unfortunately, any documentation describing how they figured this out or the formula or whatever was lost. We don't know the, the logic or thought process behind it. Um, but, but we know we, the result is pretty good. We do know that they found a way to estimate a circle's area, area by comparing it to shapes that the Egyptians were more familiar with. So in the Rhine Papyrus, they say, for example, they know a circular field with a diameter of nine units is going to have a similar, and they just say same because it's close enough, area as a square with sides of eight units. They don't explain why they know that or how they got there, but they do know that. And this is true. Um, So one theory is that they figured this out by playing this ancient game called Mancala. Yeah, okay. But you know that? Uh, no, but I know Mancala. Oh. No, that's what I'm saying. You know Mancala? Yeah. Oh, I've never heard of this before. Played so a lot. Mancala boards um, have been found carved onto the roofs of ancient temples, you know, like just like the stone floors of things. It's like people just, just played pits. it, played it while yeah. they were, um, you know, sitting around. So in a game, two players are going to start with an equal number of small, like round pebbles. Mm-hmm. The object of the game is moving around the board and take your opponent's stones on the way to the end, kind of. Like a very primitive backgammon kind of. Well, yeah, you each um, have uh, a larger pit at the end that is your pit versus theirs. 
Well, I don't know. I'm just saying what I read. I don't know if the ancient game of Moncala is different than what you have okay, played. Okay, fair what enough. I'm saying. This yeah. is just what I've read. Um, but as Everett was saying, the important thing is that the spaces on the Moncala board are circular pits. Yes. So they had this circle, and then they had these little stones that they could use as units. So uh, sometimes the stones in the circle is filled it up really perfectly, and then if you take that number of stones out, you can use those stones to build a square. Yeah. And they might have just accidentally kind of noticed this while they were playing this game. Right? Yeah. Like that, that is a valid kind of hypothesis as how did they... Like a guess and observation type of Well, they just kind of noticed after a while. And they're like, huh, yeah. I wonder what happens if I keep, you know... Extrapolating. This. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they were using a smaller shape to understand a larger one, right? Because these little stones were little circles inside the circle. Anyways, uh, that, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so mathematicians today have worked backwards from our kind of our current knowledge because we know the circle is area pi r squared. Yeah. Um, so they figured out by using this method, the Egyptians were using approximately 3.16 as the value of pi, which, as you know, is really close. It's pretty close. It's really close. It's two one hundredths off, right? Yeah, it's really close. Yeah. I feel like you're judging the ancient Egyptians for not being close enough. Well, I mean, they're, you know, 0.33% off. Uh-huh. I mean, that's, you know, okay, a lot well, of air. Well, Everett seems to think he would have done much better if no, he was an I ancient Egyptian, so you, you can uh, write him on that one. Um, okay, now to touch on the thing that you're expecting me to talk about. It's, I mean, it's Egypt, yes. So we should probably get into how the Egyptians use math to build the pyramids or, you know, how the aliens use math to build the pyramids or however you, you feel like it went down. Right. Um, so in a 4,000 year old document called the Moscow Papyrus, which is just funny, Moscow Papyrus. Okay. Um, we find a formula for the volume of a pyramid without the peak. So that's called a truncated pyramid. Mm -hmm. um, according to our modern understanding of math, the calculation of the volume of a truncated pyramid would have been one of the most advanced examples of Egyptian math. Like, this is a pretty hard concept. Um, they, they certainly would have needed a formula to calculate the materials needed for the project before they began, right? They're not just going to, like, start and just blindly guess as they go, right? Like, they need to know what they're building beforehand. Um, so this is the first hint, though, of calculus at work because what we do know about how their calculations went is they slice the pyramid into layers in order to add mm -hmm. up its volume. Um, in, in order to get perfect right angles for the buildings, including pyramids, but other buildings as well, they used a rope with knots tied in it. So at some point they realized that if they made a triangle with side of three knots, four knots and five knots. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they tied knots at a, you know, specific yeah. interval. And then, yeah, made a triangle out of three knots, four knots, and five knots. They noticed that always gave them a right angle. Yeah. We know, of course, about Pythagoras' theorem, but they they didn't necessarily grasp that underlying relationship with all triangles. Well, they, they just knew three, four, five. That <laughs> That's clearly why. Yeah, he hadn't talked to them yet. But they did know that this worked, mm. and, that, and they did use that. Um, the Egyptians didn't really work with the theory of math. They didn't come up with proofs. They didn't really investigate why things worked. It's just things just worked or they didn't, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Greeks would be probably the first one to, to get into that. But um, next we're going to talk about the Babylonians. But I would like to clarify 
I'm trying to make this a little bit chronological, but it's not necessarily, right? There's a lot of overlap in the society. I'm, I'm more well, I going to society. there's a lot of sharing between the societies that at least lived in parallel to each other. Like, there's got to be certain trade. Amount, but but it doesn't spread as far as you think it does. There's a very big West versus East divide here that yeah. we'll talk about. Um, things my... didn't leave the West or the East, really. Yeah. The West share with the West and the, well, the East. The East share with the East a little bit, but they were, like, more protective. protective. Was there a lot of... I would assume that a lot of this would happen at the point of uh, trade between cultures. And I suspect there wasn't a massive trade between the the Western and the yeah. Eastern cultures. We're not right? there yet. Okay. And we're not there yet, certainly, in the West, either. I would say that we don't get there until the Greeks start conquering people. Makes sense. And making okay. a bigger empire. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, anyway, so what I'm trying to say is that I'm kind of kind of go... Slightly chronologically, but slightly by like society. Sure. Um, so it's sort of it's not in order per se. Okay. Okay. So around 2000 BCE, um, the Babylonians started advancing math and doing some pretty cool things. Um, they controlled most of modern day Iraq, Iran, Syria, that kind of area. Uh, and in order to grow this kind of powerful empire, they actually were, you know, advancing math to do this. So there we go, yeah. colonialism or imperialism. Is a reason for for math to advance. Um, so we luckily have a lot more written evidence from the Babylonians. They had scribe schools as far back as 2500 BCE, where children um, they sent their kids there to learn to read and write and work with numbers. And the good thing about the Babylonians, from our perspective now, is that they use clay tablets to do all their work. And okay. as you might imagine, clay tablets survive much better than papyrus. Yeah, but many of the tablets that we have from them are actually like pieces of homework by school children. Cool. Yeah, so in in their scribe school game. And it's hard for the dog to eat those. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have I have no witty retort to this. Good. You and your lame jokes have silenced me. Um, we have excellent insight into how they did their math because we have school children exercises, right? Like that's a pretty cool way to learn about how their math worked. Um, we have tablets from, you know, a thousand years apart. So we can see what they used to do and how their learning and teaching evolved over time. And like the whole thing is fascinating, really. Um, they were interested in practical math, like the Egyptians, like what can we measure and what can we weigh and all that. Um, a big difference though is they used a base 60 Hmm. counting system and they also based it off of our 10 fingers you might be wondering how that's a thing <laughs> so here's what they did they no, okay yeah that used, makes sense they used one hand exactly in which <laughs> exactly yeah. oh, I, I think when you when you said it based off our hands base 60 it came to me pretty quick keep going okay so they use one hand and they count 12 knuckles on that hand no not they, the direction i was going keep going <laughs> So, like, ignore your thumb, I guess. Sure. They use, you know, your the knuckle that you use in your fist, the three knuckles on four of your fingers. Okay? okay. Knuckles on one hand, five fingers on the other. Right. So, 12 knuckles, five fingers. 12 times five is 60. 60 permutations, 60 combinations to make numbers. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and uh, um, 60 could be perfectly divided by one, two, three, four, five, and six. Mm-hmm. which made it really useful for arithmetic, which is one yeah. of the reasons they probably chose it. Um, in fact, it's so useful and logical that we have kept it to this day. 
Um, obviously with, uh, you know, minutes and hours. That's a base 60 system. Right. So a big breakthrough that we see with the Babylonians is that they did recognize place value. So just as we use positions and decimals to record the, the power of 10, they use the position of their numbers to record the power of 60 that they're um, counting. Yeah. So instead of inventing just new symbols for each bigger number like the Egyptians did, they would, for example, um, for the number 3,661, they would write 111. So they had one. 3,600, 160, and 11. Does that make sense how they how they do that? I think so. Did they, did they have um, symbol, like, did they have 60 different numbers then? Um, like, like, we have 10 symbols, right? Zero through nine. Yes. Did they I have... I mean, for sure they didn't have zero. That is not a thing yet. That's going to come up repeatedly. That's not a thing yet. Right, but like one through 60. Um, I have to imagine so, but they don't say. I didn't, I didn't, okay. I didn't see that part of it. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. No. So the Babylonian's calendar was based on the cycles of the moon. And so it's thought that having to keep track of the moon for years is actually what spurred them to develop uh, a sophisticated, like, large number system. They also had a system of angular measurement with 360 degrees in a circle. Mm -hmm. That's where they got, you know, divided into 60 minutes and dividing every minute into 60 seconds. Very cool. Didn't know that. So they were also responsible for one of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of math, which is the concept of zero. Mm. So... In the early days, in order to mark a zero in the middle of a number, they would leave a blank space. So this was confusing, and they invented a symbol to represent zero. Like I said, I just said they didn't have a zero. Because they thought of it more like punctuation. Just like they wanted to explain what was going on in the middle of this thing, but it wasn't a number. Yeah, it wasn't the concept. It wasn't a concept, it wasn't a number, but it was the first time anyone had demarcated uh, that there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Which seems like a simple thing, but it clearly wasn't because it didn't happen for a while. Now now we're talking about the symbol of zero, not the concept of zero. Right. They were the first ones to come up with the symbol of, of zero. And the fact that there should be a symbol, which yeah. is kind of the concept. Anyways, they were, they were part of the way there is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, they were also the first to work with quadratic equations. So they've stumbled upon this while trying to calculate areas of land. So if you don't remember from school, quadratic equations are where you square, where you square things, where you multiply it by itself. And so the simplest form of this is trying to find the area of a square Mm -hmm. field, for instance. Um, So they actually would try to break all of their fields into squares. So if they have a rectangular field, what they're going to do is divide it into pieces, like in their heads, right? Yeah. (laughs) And rearrange these pieces into a square in their head. Or sets of squares. No. Like, they would, like, add these pieces onto the rest of the land they didn't cut up until they made a square, basically. Okay. They cut off this long side and glue it on over here. Like, we know this had the side of three and this had the size of eight. And then we glue them all together and now we know the sides are... Anyway, so they've kind of made almost a geometric game to figure out areas. Mm-hmm. Um, they also played a lot of board games. We found tons of them. Like, scratched into palace walls and market floors... Um, they use dice with their board games, and we think they might be the first ones to have done that and invented dice. Cool. Um, the most controversial piece we have from Babylonia is called Plimpton 322. 
because Very people that name things are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a tablet from around 1800 BCE. And so on it, there's a table with four columns and 15 rows. It's transcribed in cuneiform, which is the language of the Babylonians, the written language. Um, so it's controversial because it shows the Babylonians may have known that the square of the diagonal is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides in a right angle triangle. That is confusing in words. What I'm trying to say is they might have known Pythagorean's theorem before the Greeks. But it's controversial because there's not actually a consensus that they knew what they had realized. It's like they seem to show it in a few of their problems, but there is no, we don't know for sure what they knew. We don't have enough of the materials recovered. So they might have known this, like, and the theory about it behind, before the Greeks. Like we said, obviously the Egyptians figured it out slightly, but Mm -hmm. they didn't figure out how to apply it to different sizes of triangles. Yeah. The Babylonians might have. Okay. That's why it's controversial. We do have other evidence of advanced math with triangles. So a 4,000-year-old clay tablet with a school exercise shows a triangle, and Pythagoras' theorem is used to find the value of the hypotenuse. Hypotenuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they didn't call it Pythagoras' theorem. I'm just doing that for ease. Um, you know, in yeah. this case, in this case, what it was the square root of 2. And why is that important? So the square root of 2 is what is known as um, a rational number. Mm-hmm. When I was in school, they just called them imaginary numbers. Or is that different? No, imaginary numbers is different. This is irrational. Okay, it's different. They have funny names in math. Irrational numbers are numbers that just go on forever after the decimal point. Correct. Imaginary is um, conception. Well, I'm not going to do a good job of it describing it, but imaginary number would be like the square root of minus one. Which kind of has like a theoretical answer, right? But, but it's not possible. Be, yeah, or e. I remember e or something like that. No, e would be uh, an irrational. Oh, order. there you go. E is irrational. Um. Anyways, here's the thing. This this does give us proof they understood Pythagorean's theorem over a thousand years before Pythagoras and his cult mm. figured it out. I got scared of beans. The fact that they could calculate yes, this number to four digits, which they did. It's pretty good. Is also extremely impressive for the time. Mm-hmm. So um, we're gonna we're gonna jump to the Greeks then. Okay, do that. Yeah. So by about 330 BC, the Greeks had advanced their empire into the Mesopotamian, and as you said, collected the very best ideas from their colonies. I guess we'll call them their conquered peoples. Sure. Right. So the Greeks gave us something that's a whole other aspect of math. So, so far, we've been working with very practical things. And in uh, not just math, in, in, in everything, the Greeks had a different kind of philosophical approach to figuring stuff out. They're the first ones to really work with logic, proofs, this side of math that is theoretical and not practical. Um, and, and like I said, that the same thing for philosophy and other sciences. They, they really like philosophized about math and science. Correct. It was the thought process behind it. Right. They're yeah. very they're very unique in that. Um, their mathematical system is is built on deductive reasoning. Um, the typical deductive system is that you're going to beget begin with certain axioms they call them, which you assume are true, mm-hmm. and then you use logic to use those axioms to prove theorems. That sounds really complicated, um, but it's not in in practice. We just, there's a lot of big words that make it sound scarier than it is. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So, like, like for example, an axiom would be, let's assume you can draw a line between point A and point B. Okay, now you just use a bunch of axioms to prove something. So, like, it's not as complicated as it, as it sounds with all these big words. Correct. Um, back to Pythagoras. He's credited with advancing math from the accounting of numbers to the analytic, like, subject that we recognize today. Does he deserve that credit? We've talked about it a little bit. Who knows? Who knows? Probably not. I don't know. He did found the schools, though, yeah. um, the schools, cults, whatever you want to call it, with, with multiple chapters. Like, there's good evidence. We know that that happened. Um, they're probably more of a sect or a cult than a school, as we've discussed. But either way, him or his school came up with something that even the Babylonians couldn't figure out. Maybe. Maybe, again. Um, the proof behind right angle triangles. And that really or illustrates a big like theme of Greek math, which is the appeal to beautiful arguments of geometry rather than relying on numbers. Um, so one of the things credited to Pythagoras is the mathematics of harmonics. Whether it was him or not, it's kind of cool. It's a really cool discovery by the Greeks. So, so I'll tell the, the story. Allegedly, Pythagoras is out walking one day and he hears clanking at the blacksmith and the sounds of the anvils were different but seemed to be in perfect harmony. Okay. And Pythagoras wondered, what is the logical explanation for this effect? Why do they sound good together? Why do they go together, but they're not the same? Um, and so Pythagoras used a stringed instrument to experiment, and he learned that the intervals between harmonious musical notes were always represented by whole number ratios. I don't know how to explain that in an easier way. Maybe you do, though, Evan? Mm, no, the whole number of ratios is going to be as about uh, as easy as an explanation as we're going to get. Fair enough. The important part is that Pythagoras is so excited by his discovery that music is math. Yeah. He tells his followers the whole universe is made of math. And then they go and do all this really important work. So legend has it that Hippasus, one of Pythagoras' followers, is determined to find the value of the hypotenuse of a right angle triangles with sides of length one. So he uses Pythagoras' theorem. And he assumes he is going to end up with a fraction. Mm -hmm. But when he tries to capture the exact fraction, he, can, he can't seem to get it no matter what he does. And he eventually realizes that his assumption is incorrect. It's not a fraction. It's an irrational number. That mm -hmm. darn square root of two again. And the Babylonians, of course, already knew this, but they hadn't recognized what it means. And Hippasus realizes that a rational numbers is a whole new concept for the mathematical world. He, he's, he's like a biologist discovering a new species or an explorer discovering new land. This is a whole new realm that's going to let math do cool new things. He wasn't sure what they were, but he knew that yeah. they could use this for something. I, to be fair, I have no idea what you use rational numbers for in the math world, but the Pythagoreans didn't either. They just couldn't fit this irrational number thing into the worldview, so they just threw out the idea. Okay. Yeah, didn't work out. Um, or you could, you know, believe that the alternative story, which is that Pythagoras swore his cult to secrecy about what they discovered, and then Hippasus let it slip anyways, and then Pythagoras had him drowned, or drowned him himself. Um, that's a more interesting story. Yeah, that is. So I'm going to go with that one. Um, so schools flourished all over Greece, built on the principles of logic and axioms, and, and all the discoveries made by Greek thinkers. Um, the most famous was, was the Academy. It was founded by Plato in Athens in 387 BC. Um, 
Plato was kind of enraptured by the Pythagorean worldview, and he thought math was the most important type of knowledge as it explained the universe. So I didn't know about that at all. Like, I didn't know he's apparently one of the most influential, if not the most, most influential Greek mathematician. Like, he's Plato. I never heard it was about math. Like, I thought it was just philosophy and stuff, but no. Yeah, but there was, especially in that time, the root of math was a very was approached and advanced through philosophical thought. So, like, philosophy and math weren't really that separate as concepts. Nothing was, right? They were all polymaths, whatever you call it, when you're specialized in everything. But yeah. but I just, I had no idea he was so involved in math. So he especially liked geometry. He said, geometry is the key to unlocking the secrets of the universe. So above the entrance to the academy, Plato had a sign place that read, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here. Okay. Yeah. He theorized the universe could be crystallized into five regular symmetrical shapes, which we now call the Platonic solids. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, this is the ancient Greeks we're talking about, so we're going to throw in some elements for some reason. The tetrahedron represents fire. The icosahedron, so that's 20 triangles, was water. The cube was earth. The octahedron was air. And the dodecahedron was not an element. It was all the elements, the shape which captured Plato's view of the entire universe. Um, cute story, but it's actually pretty accurate if you leave out the elements. <laughs> <laughs> so then the Library of Alexandria became the leading scientific establishment. They became the first to pay scientists to do research. They, they, this included mathematicians. They were scientists. Um, science was started to be seen as a status symbol. Like a great leader would be one whose civilization discovered the most. Like it didn't have to just be conquering the most or being the richest. Like maybe that was also part of the prestige. So leaders started to put more effort and resources into these types of things. Um, so one of the best mathematicians in Alexandria was a guy called Euclid. Mm-hmm. Around 300 BCE, he wrote arguably the most important textbook of all time. The elements. I, I'm not. I'm not exaggerating when I say of all time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fair to point out that Euclid probably didn't come up with all of the stuff in the book. His his greatest achievements were as a chronicler Compiled of math. It. Yeah. But he he did a lot of it. We're not saying he didn't do any of it. But he fair definitely enough. yes compiled what was currently known about certain topics. Um, so. Like you said before, the Greeks were really quite amazing at building off each other's thoughts. So that wasn't always done so well um, in other cultures before that. Because, like, let's face it, communication was a lot harder. And knowing what was going on was a lot harder until you had bigger city-states and bigger collections of people and that kind of stuff. So in the elements, Euclid recorded axioms and the ways that the Greeks used deductive reasoning to use those axioms in proofs. So this book has formulas for the volume of a cone, volume of a cylinder, proofs about geometric series, about perfect numbers, about prime numbers. He also includes a proof about why there can only be five symmetrical solids, the platonic solids. Um, and, And the most amazing thing about this book is that it's right. Like, unlike everything I've ever told you about the ancient Greeks like they nailed this this is over 2,000 years ago and and all of the proofs in the book still hold up to this day but that goes back to the use of the axioms and and the the way that they did proofs right but they didn't do that for any other science which is weird yeah they didn't prove anything in any other science they just made stuff up 
I find that very odd that in, in Greek culture that they somehow separated. They knew it was a science. Mm-hmm. They treated it like a science. And then biology and all the other stuff, they're just like, Meh. let's just guess. Yeah. This sounds right. Mm-hmm. Let's just say your body's full of humors and stuff. <laughs> Anyways. Well, I think one of the things that Euclid probably got right that I got wrong is that E is both an imaginary number and a rational number. How could so. it be both? Math is so confusing, yo. Well, they're just, they're sets of numbers, and... How can it be imaginary and also a repeating decimal? That's apparently okay. Oh, okay. But it's like how, you know, the number seven is in the set of prime numbers and in the set of integers. Similar to that. Okay. Um, one final point about Euclid is that you may not know this, but the geometry that you have learned in school is Euclidean geometry. Correct. Yeah. Like, again, we have not changed a thing. We're like, yeah, you guys got it. We're good. Mm-hmm. Again, which is why I find it so silly. I know a lot of it was because they couldn't do the same type of research because there was some sort of taboo about actually doing autopsy or experiments on people with, with like, the biology. But, like, yeah. in general, I just find it so funny. They worked so hard and they were so logical in how they built up their mathematical ideas and every science they're like, whatever. <laughs> yeah okay yeah it's funny is it not yeah <laughs> so another uh famous mathematician who worked in alexandria was archimedes of eureka in the bathtub fame um i'm not going to talk about him much here though because like i i really believe i'm going to do an episode on his use of mathematics in war and his life just like one day i'll, I'll talk about archimedes sure. i really feel like i will um and then what's going to happen is is the math in the West kind of just slumps. Not much advancement is made in the West for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, one may even say millennia. But um, the East is really gonna is really gonna have a lot of math for us, and so we're gonna save that all for the next part too because we have certainly run out of time. Um, so next. Next episode on uh, on podcast, we're going to talk about ancient China, ancient India, the Arabic mathematicians, and we'll delve into the maths of some ancient tribes of the Americas, like the Mayans and the Incans. Oh, cool. Well, I told you we'll get to the Kipu. That's true. I, it's from I the Americas. Say, we'll I'm get not there. Familiar with that at all? Yeah. We will get there. Um, but I already talked about math for an hour, so everyone's asleep. So I better stop now. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Uh, once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.